Heavenly Father, God, we just praise you this morning. Uh, we've had so many praises, and we praise you for all of them. But we also praise you, God, because you are God. You are the only true God. This morning, as we dig into your word, I pray that you will help us to see you in it. Help us to learn more about you, God, or um, help us to, to be transformed into being more like you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so we are continuing our sermon series uh, into the post-exilic books. Uh, so as you look into the Old Testament and you try to read through the Old Testament, if you read it uh, in the order that it's in in your Bible, it's actually not chronological order. Um, and so what we're doing is we're looking at what would be time-wise the end of the Old Testament. And yes, some of the books are actually at the end in your Bible, but some of them are not because our Bibles are not ordered according to time. Um, this morning, though, we're going to be in uh, Zechariah and Haggai. Um, it's two different prophets. Um, actually, the message or the title of the sermon this morning is Two Prophets, One Message. And so if you turn in your Bible to uh, Zechariah 1, you'll find that Haggai is actually right there close to it as well. Um, and this morning, uh, the main idea in this passage or in these two passages is that both of these prophets tell the Jews to repent. Well, if they're both giving the same message, it must be important. And so we'll see that uh, kind of in three different ways here is uh, there's a message about their ancestors. There's a message about holiness. And then God says from this day on. So before we get into the text, I want to give a little bit of review. So going back to, like I said, into kind of the, the Middle Old Testament, there was a, a time where um, the kingdom had split into two kingdoms and they had um, several different kings. And eventually both of those two kingdoms were sent into exile um, for different or for the same reason, actually. Um, and while they're there in exile, um, they're you know, separated from God. They're separated from their home. Uh, and the, the, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. And then there's a change of power. The, the Babylonian Empire falls and the Persian Empire comes into power. And King Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, issued a decree to allow the Jews to return from exile. He gave them uh, permission to rebuild the temple. Well, not just permission, he actually helped to fund this building project. Um, and as they were beginning to rebuild, they started with the altar. And then as, as soon as the altar was completed, they started uh, giving their sacrificial uh, worship there. Um, and then some problems arose from their neighbors, and their neighbors didn't like that they were restarting this worship, and so they threatened them. And the Jews were afraid of these threats because there was a small group of them who came back to Jerusalem uh, to rebuild the temple, um, and were, their neighbors were very numerous. And so they were scared, so they stopped building the temple. Um, and that cease lasted for 15 years until God spoke to them through Haggai to convince them to continue building. And so they got back to work. Uh, that was the sixth month of the second year of King Darius. Then a month later, in the seventh month, there were some people who were complaining about the size of the new temple because the new temple was a whole lot smaller than the old temple. So they were complaining about that. Uh, but God reassured them that the glory of the temple comes from Him. The temple glory comes from God's glory, not the size of the temple or the decoration of the temple. And this passage comes in the very next month. It says, uh, starting in Zechariah 1, verse 1, In the eighth month, in the second year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, some son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says. Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Now, before we keep reading through this prophecy, notice what, it's, uh, notice what it was that the Jews did 
This time, that angered God. And you look in there, what was it that they did that, that angered God? There's nothing listed. Nothing. Uh, at least there's nothing specific indicated in Zechariah's prophecy. Now, see, previously they had ceased working on the temple for fear of their neighbors, but they were back to work on the temple. Last month, uh, there was some complaining about the size of the, of the temple, but that seems to have died down as well. So what is mentioned here in Zechariah's prophecy is old history. It says that God was angry with their ancestors. In one sense, it seems as though God is not speaking specifically to these Jews, but to the nation of Israel throughout history, up to and including the Jews there with Zechariah. So God tells them as a whole to turn back to him. They tried their own thing and it didn't work out for them. So now turn back to God and he will come back to them. Now this message is the same for us. See, our sin guilt, it didn't start with us. Our sin guilt goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, though we are all guilty of it as well. We participate in that sin. But because of our sin guilt, we are separated from God like the Israelites and they were sent into captivity. Now God has made a way for us to turn back to him. And that is through his son, Jesus. Jesus came and lived a sinless life, perfect and guiltless. Then he took our guilt and our shame and our sin debt on the cross. When we place our faith in him as Lord over our life, our sin guilt is forgiven and we can return to God. And he adopts us as his children and gives us eternal life with him in heaven. Let's keep reading. It says, Do not be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, This is what the Lord of armies says, Turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Where are your ancestors now? And the pro do the prophets live forever? But didn't my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? So the people repented and said, As the Lord of armies decided to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So God says, uh, Turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. So again, Zechariah is looking, well, God speaking through Zechariah is kind of looking into the history of the nation of Israel. Nothing exactly specific that he's naming here. Uh, when he says, uh, turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds, the way that it's worded, it almost sounds like it's a quote. But when you look back through, this, this isn't really uh, an exact quote from any, any of the previous prophets. So it seems like Zechariah is kind of pulling on the, the general consensus of the prophets who came before him, the pre-exilic prophets. So before the, is, uh, before the exile, the Israelites were warned time after time to return to God. See, after King Solomon died, the kingdom was split into two kingdoms. Uh, there was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel was plagued with evil kings. The prophets warned them and warned them, but they didn't listen. They continued down their evil path. Eventually, God had this kingdom destroyed by the Assyrians, and they were sent into exile. The southern kingdom, Judah, they fared a little bit better. Not all of their kings were evil, but eventually this pattern of sinfulness and godlessness was punished as well. Just like the northern kingdom, God warned Judah through the prophets, but God had that kingdom destroyed by the Babylonians, and they were sent into exile. Though Zechariah is not quoting any specific prophet, God is using him to recall this history that they had, and, and he's trying to bring this history to the minds of the Jews. So, real quick, on a side note, what do we call them? Do we call them Hebrews? Do we call them Israelites? Or do we call them Jews? Well, generally, these three terms refer to the same group of people. However, there is some slight nuance that um, you might see or you might notice as we uh, go through. And there's a little nuance to their meaning. 
So as a general reference, this is not a hard and fast rule, but as a general reference, before the conquest of the promised land, they're referred to as Hebrews. So you can think of Abraham to Joshua. In that, those generations, they're referred to as Hebrews. Then after the conquest of the promised land, they're referred to as Israelites. So you can think of the period of the judges up to the exile. Uh, during the exile, they began to be known more as Jews. And this name has stuck ever since. This may be because the, rem the remnant who returned after the exile were mostly descendants of the people who were exiled from Judah, uh, and then they returned to the province of Judea. Whatever the reasoning is, the, the name Jew has kind of stuck more than Israelite or Hebrew. However, when you're studying the scriptures, we do see these names, uh, and I just don't want you to be confused as to who they are. Whether it's Hebrew or Israelite or Jew, it's speaking of the same people group. Now, I will try to stick to the, the general time frame uh, rule, um, but like I said, it's not a hard and fast rule, and I might slip up every now and then, or if you slip up and, and refer to you know, the, the post-exilic Jews and refer to them as Hebrews, that technically it's not wrong. It's just I'm, I'm not going to correct you over it. There's no reason for us to get over uh, any, any upset about it. But anyways, God is reminding the Jews that their nation's history of, or he was reminding them of their nation's history of habitual sin. And it is to serve as a warning to them, but not, not just so the Jews don't, or so just so the Jews don't miss the warning. God has two rhetorical questions for them. He asks, where are your ancestors now? And do the prophets live forever? So each of these rhetorical questions serves as a type of warning for the, uh, the Jews. Uh, he says, where are your ancestors now? See, the Israelites ignored God's warning. The prophets spoke to them time and time again about God's displeasure with the people. But they ignored God's warning. And Jeremiah wept over the sins of his people. But the Israelites ignored God's warning. So God had them exiled to a foreign land. And they left, and they were exiled, and most of them died off over there. And then he says, do the prophets live forever? See, God spoke to the Israelites through the prophets, but they were ignored Eventually, they died out, and it was too late to hear their message. See, God is using these words to warn the Jews. Listen to this message now before it's too late. Listen to this message so that you don't end up like your ancestors. Well, well uh, we read that the people repented. The Jews repented. Now, I know that I've explained this several times, but it's a very important concept throughout the Bible, so it bears repeating. Uh, to repent simply means to turn away from something towards something else. So if I'm heading in this direction, I could repent from heading in this direction and go towards heading in this direction. When we're talking about it in the Bible, a lot of times, or usually it's, it's referred to turning away from sin and turning back towards God. When God is calling these Jews to repent, he tells them to turn away from your sin and turn back to me. That call to repent is the same for each and every one of us. Turn away from our sin and turn towards Jesus. You could think of it like this, all right? So if I were to, to uh, drive out uh, our driveway here and then turn left onto Rockfish Road and then turn right onto Camden Road and I'm heading towards Cumberland Coffee Roasters because I love it there. And so I, I get up to uh, Main Street and I turn right onto Main Street and I'm going and I'm driving and I don't know, you, you've probably noticed there's a little bit of construction going on over there. Um, you can't turn left to get into Cumberland Coffee Roasters, so you have to go past it, and then you get it by the, um, the post office, and you have to do a U-turn. So at that point, you are repenting from Reeves Funeral Home to go back towards Cumberland Coffee Roasters. 
So you can think of repentance like that. See, for the Jews, it was to turn away from their fear of their neighbors and to trust in God. They were to turn away from focusing on their own homes and focus on building the temple. They were to repent from their self-centeredness and return to worshiping God. Now, in your Bibles, turn to Haggai chapter 2. For many of you, it should just be the previous page in your Bible, or if you're like me, you just click the left arrow on the app, and it should take you right there to uh, Haggai chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 10. It says, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of armies says. Ask the prophets for a ruling. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? They answered, no. Then Haggai asked, if someone, sorry, there we go. Then Haggai asked, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? The priests answered, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai replied, so, uh, so is this people, so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands. Even what they offer there is defiled. So real quick, I know I've highlighted these uh, little timestamps in the text. I really like the timestamps in the text. Uh, but I want to review the timeline. Right? In the sixth month of the second year of King Darius, it was Haggai's first address to the Jews. And you can read about that in Haggai chapter 1. It was the sixth month of the second year of Darius. The Jews, uh, they get back to work. In the seventh month of the second year, so just a month later, Haggai addresses the, the size complainers. And in, in the eighth month, that was the Zechariah passage that we just read. Zechariah reminds the Jews of their ancestors' rebellion. And now we're in the ninth month of the second year of King Darius. Haggai is now addressing them again. So for four months now, God has spoken to these people through the prophets. Every month for four months. This oracle uses priestly regulations to communicate the point that the people's failure uh, to complete the temple had caused their uncleanness. For us, this is a little bit hard to understand because we're not as familiar with the Old Testament holiness code as the Jews were. But basically, we have two situations outlined. One, where the priest is carrying some meat that had been offered as a sacrifice. And as he's carrying the meat around, it touches some of the more common foods, foods that were not typically offered as a sacrifice, and therefore they were considered not holy. Not necessarily unclean, but they weren't holy either. And so the priest is carrying around this consecrated meat, and it touches the common foods. And uh, Haggai says, does the food, the common food, now does that become holy? And they say, well, no, it doesn't. Well, if you were to go back and read through Leviticus, you see that they're answering correctly. And then they talks about the, um, the, the, the rule about the corpse. If the person touches a corpse, well, now they're unclean. And if they take uh, if they go from there and then they touch some of these common foods, now those common foods are unclean. The idea is that holiness cannot, or holiness is not easily transferable, but uncleanness is. The, uh, sorry, the lesson here is that uncleanness can be transmitted indirectly, but holiness cannot be transmitted indirectly. So God says, so it is with this people and so it is with the nation before me. Uh, Haggai takes the priest's answer and applies it to the people. The process of being made clean or holy before Yahweh requires intentional effort. But before coming, before, I'm sorry, but becoming unholy, on the other hand, requires no effort, only contact with the unclean. The lesson for the people 
was that they had not taken appropriate action to deal with their uncleanness. Their failure to rebuild the temple had created a cloud of disobedience over everything that they did. Now, I came in yesterday as uh, Philip Lover and his team were finishing up these lights, um, and we had a somewhat similar conversation. He said that it's easy to be bad, but being good is hard. You have to try consistently to be good. You don't even have to try to be bad. It just seems to come naturally. And my response was, well, thank God he guides us and gives us the strength to be good because I can't do it on my own. I learned that one in college. Um, So I want to reiterate the message that Haggai is delivering from God. Holiness is hard and it requires effort. Uncleanness can sneak up on you and it has snuck up on the Jews because they haven't been obedient in finishing the temple. Now, uh, picking up in verse 15, he says, Now from this day on, think carefully. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? When someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. When one came to a wine press to to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted 20. I struck you all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't return to me, or you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. From this day on, think carefully from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, think carefully. Is there still seed in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced, but from this day on, I will bless you. So again, I'm going to highlight that timestamp there, the 24th day of the ninth month. Like I said, I know I keep coming back to these dates, but they help us to understand some important details. So the 24th day of the ninth month, this would have been uh, late November, early December time frame, according to our calendar. Therefore, the harvest would have already been completed for that year, and they would have had a, a, a full grasp on just how short their crop had come up. But God is reassuring them. They might be running short on grain, their fruit hasn't been producing, but their trust should not be in those things. Their trust should be in God. He will provide for them if they will just trust in Him. They need to turn away from the fear of their neighbors and trust in God. They need to turn away from focusing on rebuilding their own homes and focus on building the temple. This is the exact message that Zechariah gave them. It's two different prophets, but one message. Repent from disobedience towards God. It's a reminder to be obedient to the mission that God gave them. When they turn back to God, He will bless them. So what application do we get from this message? And there's a a whole lot of Old Testament stuff going on here, some stuff that doesn't quite seem to apply sometimes. But like I've said, as we're reading through these post-exilic texts, I think it's really good for us as a church to look at these. We are what's called a a revitalization. Now, I know that can kind of sound like a a scary thing to be a revitalization as a church, Um, but depending on the statistics, most of the churches in the United States are in need of some sort of revitalization. It's just typically the the churches that are going to make that turnaround recognize that they need some revitalization or that they are in a state of of revitalization. So we look at this as a church and we wonder, how does this apply to us? And we look at it as individuals and we wonder, how does it apply to us? Now remember, our application always comes from our uh, definition of a disciple and our three indicators of a disciple, and that's knowing, being, and doing. So the first is to know that we need to repent. The Jews were called to repent and reminded of their ancestors' sins. It's almost like God was saying, make sure that you don't fall into the same trap that they did. It's almost like the sins, the same sins are easy to fall back into. 
that, that uncleanness, it just sneaks up on you. Well, no, it's not almost like that. It is, it is exactly like that. Unfortunately, though, those sins that so easily sneak up on us, or those sins that we keep falling into, they might be different than they, for you than they are for me. See, on Wednesday night, we had our Acts prayer meeting. And in the confession section, I started with, God, I need to confess again my sin of... Well, to know what sin that is, you'd have, you'd have been here. Um, you might need to repent of the same sin over and over again. See, this is spiritual warfare. And Satan's found a weakness in us. And just like any good tactician, if you find a weakness in your enemy, you're going to continue to attack that same weakness. And so don't be surprised when you fall into that same sin over and over again. It's a weakness that you have. Coming to our prayer meetings and confessing those sins helps. But just confessing them isn't enough. You have to repent from them. We need to repent from our uh, habitual sins. Though a sign that you are maturing as a disciple is that you are falling into that same sin less and less, hopefully. So as you mature, that same sin should be coming less and less. The second application point is to be holy. See, throughout the books of Moses... The command to be holy as God, has, as God is holy comes up repeatedly. And then Peter picks up and reiterates that theme in the New Testament. Unfortunately, though, Haggai shows us that holiness is not something that comes easily, but it is easily lost. Because of our sin, we cannot attain holiness on our own. Our holiness comes from faith in Jesus. He offers it to us through his sacrifice on the cross. And after coming to faith, God continues to guide us in holiness through His Holy Spirit. And the final application point is to repent. Now, I know it seems like I'm kind of hitting the same nail with the same hammer here when the no is to know that we need to repent and then the do is to repent. But knowing that you need to do something and actually doing it are two different things. See, I know I need to do more cardio-based workouts, but I don't actually do it. I know that I need to be in bed every night by 10 o'clock, but that doesn't always happen and probably won't tonight either. Uh, knowing that you need to repent and actually doing it are two different things. So the application is to do it, to repent, to actually do it. Turn away from your sins and turn back to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we thank you for your word and the truth that is in your word. Father, this morning we talked a lot about holiness and repentance. Father, we know that we don't deserve holiness. Because of our sin, we have ruined our holiness. But God, you've made a way to give us that holiness back through surrendering to faith in you, to giving you lordship over our lives. God, help us to know that we need to repent. Help us to know specific sins that we need to repent from. God, help us to be holy. You give us that holiness, but help us to strive to be holy, God. And then finally, God, help us to actually repent, not just know what it is we need to repent from, but to actually do it, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.